Hello everybody, Jamie and George here. Say hello George. Hello. So welcome to another episode of Who's Afraid of the Big Idea, the show where George and I take you on a journey with fascinating companies, innovative leaders and forward thinkers. With our curious caps on, we aim to break down the tools, tactics and processes that you can use each and every day to tackle the big ideas that you face. Hey guys, Jamie here. Before we get started, I want to give you a very quick bit of background on today's guest and what we cover in the episode. So today, I talked to Alexa Fernandez, Market Development Director at BBVA. For those interested in open banking, this episode is worth a listen. Alexa shares a story about breaking up with her bank after an 11-year relationship. Evidently, fintech opens her eyes to new digital possibilities. And we discussed the potential for open banking to make more customers decide to break up with their bank too. Among many other things, we discussed the importance of networking also and the impact it's had on her career. I think networking and human relationships are perhaps to an extent overlooked in the digital age and Alexa makes a really strong case for its continued importance. On the networking front, Alexa is also the president and founder of the US Alumni Club a social network for US alumni in the UK. And so for our listeners from the States, I encourage you to check out usalumni.club and capitalise on some of their networking opportunities. Anyway, I'd better stop rambling on and introduce Alexa. Enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Who's Afraid of the Big Idea. Uh, I'm sat here with Alex Fernandez and I'm really pleased uh, that she's able to join us today. This is in fact take two of this episode because something went wrong the first time and so <laughs> she's been kind enough to let us back in the office again uh, for take two. Uh, drizzly day outside, classic London summer weather. Um, but we're nice and <laughs> cosy in here and looking forward to, to chatting. So thanks, Alexa, for being with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, so you guys might detect Alexa has a bit of an accent. Um, so I thought for some context, perhaps you could just give us a bit of background into yourself, kind of where you come from and, and the, the story behind Alexa Fernandez and what brings you kind of here today, I suppose. So I grew up in Texas in El Paso, which is a border town. Uh, in the south of the U.S. My family is from Mexico, and I grew up in at home speaking Spanish and speaking English and learning English at school. So my education has always been in the U.S. I went to undergrad in Texas, and then I did a master's in business and a master's in public policy in D.C. Uh, prior to that, I was working in the airline industry. Then after graduating from my graduate school, I had a choice. I really wanted to work in politics, but I, and I did that for quite some time. I worked a couple of months on Capitol Hill in the U.S., but then at the same time I was applying for a work permit that the U.K. government had at the time, which was for highly skilled migrants, and through my MBA, I was qualified to get the work permit, so I got it and packed my bags and moved to London, and that was in October of 2005. Uh, I found a job. I didn't want to go into business or corporate. I really wanted to focus on the public policy side. So I worked in healthcare, doing research on the elderly care market. Then I worked at a care home operator. Then I got my British citizenship, took some time off, and then started working in banking. 
uh, I started in the investment bank and I did a bit of everything. I did like some compliance and real estate projects, a lot of project management. Then I moved to the client side. And then about three years ago, I discovered this whole fintech universe, one which my bank was pretty active in. And I took it upon myself to really learn all about it and make that transition into the fintech and digital side of my bank. And I've been doing that now for two years. And then another thing that's really important about myself is that I'm quite active in the uh, alumni community. So when I moved to London, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a network. I had a hard time, one, making friends because I worked at a very small company. And two, just finding a job initially was very difficult. And so I wanted to make friends and I wanted to build a network. And I did that through my alumni community. So I started running the the alumni club for my university, for my graduate university, Georgetown. I did that for several years, built up a great network of friends and and then eventually stepped down after seven years and then started another club called the U.S. Alumni Club, which is for anybody that studied in the U.S. And the idea is there is a community that's available for people like myself who have moved abroad and your alumni network in many ways your best asset that's a way to make friendships to integrate into the community and so that's what we're aiming to build the U.S. Alumni Club so we do it by offering events and support to the community to the alums themselves but also to the people that run the individual clubs because running an alumni club for any university is all a volunteer basis and um, and you mentioned the the, the alumni community from mm-hmm. Georgetown specifically mm-hmm. was really important when you first came to London mm-hmm. is there a number of Georgetown alumni that, that, that make this transition? Um, yeah, so Georgetown, for example, is a quite international school. So you have mm-hmm. a lot of uh, people from outside of the U.S. that study there and then either move back to their countries or to a city like London. Mm-hmm. So right now, the Georgetown alumni community is about 1,200 yeah. people. And it's a combination of Europeans, other international students, and Americans. Fantastic. And that's kind of also started to reflect in the U.S. alumni community that is reflective of all of the universities in the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that, you know, aren't American but studied in the U.S. and they want to maintain that connection. And there's a shared uh, experience there as well that people want to maintain. So last week, uh, or a couple of weeks back now, uh, our previous episode was was with Will Beeson. I believe he's a fellow Texan. Yeah. And he's now in London working in banking as well. In between being in, in the US and London, he spent some time in Rome, which was his dream move. Was London always the dream move for you, or was it a business decision, um, or what brought you here specifically? And then as a B-side, if there was a dream move, <laughs> where would that be and why? So, London was not. It was actually France, because I studied abroad in France for one year, yeah. through my undergrad university, and I really loved it. I studied in Lyon, and after that I always wanted to come back to mm-hmm. Europe. And I would have thought Paris would have been, or that was kind of my dream move, to go to Paris. But nobody else in Europe offered, at the time, the kind of work permit benefits Mm. that the UK did. Uh, So I took advantage of it. Uh, And now that I did, and I've been here for so long, I've been here like almost 12 years now, it continues, it, it is and will be for a long time my dream move. Like, yeah. I'm quite happy here. I love the city. Just so vibrant. So, such a 
big international community. I think it's the most international community in the world. It's become um, even more so through the last couple of years. So I've really seen a transformation of London since I've been here in a good way. Um, and because of that, I've actually found it very hard to leave. I love it so much as a city. I can't imagine going anywhere else. Where will I have this broad range of friends from all over the world and also the cultural activities, even the food scene, uh, everything is here. And, you know, London is the kind of city where you're always discovering somebody, something new. So mm. you can be walking down the street, same street, which I did for one of my commutes. I, I'd walk a lot. And every time I'd walk down a street, I'd discover something new. Yeah. And that's what's so wonderful about London. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the food scene. And I'm <laughs> yeah. pleased to say that's come on leaps and bounds over the last yeah, 20 years. Yeah, it really years has. <laughs> we traditionally had awful food. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty... It was, you know what? In certain ways, the recession, I think, has really helped invigorate London because, so before that, you know, the restaurant scene, as an example, everything was super expensive. Uh, so you could either have a really nice meal at an expensive restaurant, and even then, you weren't guaranteed it was going to be that good. It was more of a scene. Or just really bad, cheap food, which was like boiled vegetables <laughs> and overcooked hamburgers. It's a good old British boiled yeah. vegetable. <laughs> And then uh, in 2008, when the economy hit, like the restaurants had to work really hard mm. to get people through their doors again. And then it also obviously started the food truck scene and the food festival, which I think has made um, the quality and the diversity mm. much better. But then I think you also got a big influx of Europeans from the continent that have higher food standards. <laughs> yeah. And I think that really helped. Yeah. And that, I think, is relevant to... In general, a lot of things like, you know, part of the reason, for example, the fintech scene is so vibrant is that you have so many people coming from all over Europe and there's so much talent. It's concentrating here in the UK. And so you've got a lot of uh, innovation and a lot of great things happening that aren't happening in other parts of the capital and other parts of Europe. And of course, there's other factors that come into play. But to me, that's just an example of like how the need for people to find work, ended up with them coming to London because this is where the opportunities are. And as a result, it leads to great things like good food and good technology. Yeah, absolutely. That was going to be my, my next point exactly from a, from a cultural as well as a business perspective in terms of fintech. London is certainly bubbling at the moment, I'd say. And in your role, from my understanding, you're lucky enough that you can explore a lot of that. Um, how do you kind of measure success? Or what does success look like to you? And again, with all these questions, you can interpret that as working for a bank, as a, as a, as a fintech advocate, or from a personal or professional perspective, however you kind of like. Hmm. I think success is hard to define when you're an ambitious person because success is never attainable. Hmm. You always think you've reached that point of success but you need to move on to the next one so success is just should be equated with happiness and I think that's sometimes hard to obtain career-wise uh, personally uh, success is also happiness and being comfortable with yourself and with what you uh, have in life yeah, I, I, I think success and happiness, there's an interesting dynamic between the two. 
So you might know uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, one of the most successful football managers of all time. So he won. No, not really. So uh, <laughs> to put it in context, he was a football manager. He won the record amount of Premier Leagues mm-hmm. in the UK. But supposedly every time he won a league, he was unhappy because he was thinking about the next one. And I think there's a certain mindset of someone who can reach the summit and then immediately be looking at the next one, which drives that success. But I guess it's the balance between where does happiness lie and fall into that. And there's something, there must be something kind of just generally unhappy about that his mentality that he was that driven to achieve the success he did. Yeah. So I think there's probably an interesting balance there. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Success is, um, for some people, much easier to define than for others. Hmm. And from a fintech perspective, for the industry, what do you think success looks like? Um, just before we were recording, we were speaking about there being a number of different products now, a number of apps. I can do my foreign transfer here. I can have a smartphone, iPhone-only current account. And then there's a plethora of different options. Is, is it becoming easier for customers to manage their money? Is it becoming harder because of the more choice? Are they spending more time, less time? Or what should the industry as a whole be trying to do to you know, be as successful as possible for customers? So for me, it's becoming harder because I have so many apps that I've downloaded. And I am indeed like scattered across all of them. But I'm quite unique because that's not only my job, but I like testing out all the mm. new different products that come out and, and apps. But for the everyday customer, I think it is and will be easier uh, mm. because a lot of the innovation and the stuff that these startups are implementing mm. are being adopted by the larger banks. Yeah, And so... If it's not directly through a startup that by you adopting their or using their app or their product, then eventually that'll trickle in through the larger banks who will see the need to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, something as simple as tracking, you know, uh, who you're, where you're spending your money, categorization. I mean, yeah. that, that's something simple that a lot of the UK banks are still actually not doing. Yeah. But I saw recently that a few of them are starting to implement. Uh, or something like micro savings. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of that rounding up your expenses so that you could start saving money that way. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's, you know, in the US, there's that. that you're starting to have fintech companies that are allowing you to do that here. Um, I started seeing banks. Mm. My bank, at least here in the UK, uh, is doing that as well. Yeah. Um, what does that mean for the larger community, though, in terms of if the banks start doing it, does that mean there's hope then for the startups? It's a tough question because you have to, as a startup then, uh, make sure that it, you're not just one product or one feature. that You can't be a feature yeah. that can then be adopted by the banks. And so there's, a, there's innovation in features, which is great. Ultimately, that's benefiting the consumers. Then there's a different kind of innovation, which is a pro- like how you charge the, com- the customer or what you offer them. And that, I think, has wider implications because a lot of times the banks can't do it themselves simply because, you know, something like SME lending where the credit profile is too, uh, 
too risky for banks to adopt. So in come the innovators who offer more credit to those companies that traditionally haven't been, haven't had access to that. Yeah. That's being done by the startups, and I, con- I imagine it will continue to be done by them for a while. Yeah. So there's different things that are happening. I think the biggest challenge that the industry faces is because of all of these different things, you, all you, what you're seeing right now is the, the startups targeting niche areas, you know, like savings and lending and um, credit scoring and fraud management. There's not one real either bank or startup or anybody else that has come up with like a overall solution that's focused on the customer. Yeah. You know, that one thing that becomes the the most used app or web application for the customer. I think that will probably come with PSD2 and mm-hmm. open banking. Yeah. And that will enable a lot more free flow of information and it hasn't happened yet. So you've seen a lot of niche innovation and I think it's time for like that big mm-hmm. customer centric as much as banks and the industry loves to use the word customer centric. It hasn't really happened yet. Yeah. Really. I do. I do think there's the opportunity for the customer to be at the middle and then either one company we don't know who that's going to be or how it's going to pan out yet. Be the the one that kind of controls all of that, and yeah. then everybody else connects to that. Yeah, that that's my vision of how it'll happen in the next two or three years. Yeah, so that's kind of the vision for kind of medium yeah. term success. In in the short term, um, do you think this kind of disaggregation is good for customers? You mentioned you've got a number of apps mm-hmm. that because you're an early adopter, a fintech enthusiast you have when you play with but for your average customer maybe they wouldn't want to have or have the space for all those apps on their phone even yeah and so do you think that opportunity and that the, the choice that they have is actually a good thing or do you think maybe it's not until it gets re-aggregated as you say in a single platform oh of course it is choice is always better than none <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know which bank you use but i recently so i recently broke up with my bank Right. <laughs> <laughs> I I I uh I moved, when I moved to the UK I had a hard time finding a bank account opening a bank account because I didn't have a any sort of history here so this was twelve years ago finally got yeah. a bank to open up a bank account for me and I've been with them for like you know the eleven and a half years that I've been in the UK and it drove me absolutely insane their app is so outdated yeah. I mean, I wrote a whole art piece on this. It's on LinkedIn, if you, and it's literally called I Broke Up With My Bank. <laughs> and it, it goes into, like, the frustrations I had. Yeah. Um, but then through my work and being able to use all of these new fintech apps and um, really, like, being educated on what's out there and what's possible, I realized, you know what? I don't need to keep using this bank. Yeah. It's time for me to change. And so it kind of gave me the courage to break up with my bank (laughs) and find a new one. It's interesting terminology you use there. Was there just an ongoing feeling of this relationship's not quite working? It's exactly (laughs) what it feels like. you feel liberated after having broken up with (laughs) it. 
It's really funny because I did feel like I was in a bad relationship. <laughs> and I think more and more people will start to realize yeah. that. I mean, it's that's what, you know, innovation and disruption does. Yeah. And so I think having as much choice as possible is better for the consumer overall. And did you have a, a, a new bank lined up when you decided to break up with old bank? <laughs> yeah. So I actually broke up with the bank inadvertently because I'd been hunting around for a new bank for a while. I was really, really keen on getting one of the challenger banks, but they hadn't, they weren't um, quite ready yet with current mm-hmm. accounts. Mm-hmm. So I had to look for the established high street banks. And finally, I, I, I had a credit card with another bank for quite some time and decided, okay, I like their app. Their credit card app is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Looks like their current account is going to be nice as well. So I'm going to switch. Yeah. And I started the whole account switching process without realizing that by doing so, I would actually be completely terminating my account with the old bank. Oh, wow. So it happened <laughs> like really without me intending to do so. And it, if I had known that that was going to happen, I probably wouldn't have done it because there's like this emotional connect I had to my account number and sort code. I didn't want to give that up. But uh, I got a letter in the post that said, you know, you've switched. This can't be undone. It's happened. And I was like, wow, I've done it. And now, like, I feel completely liberated. So, I, again, this is why open banking is going to help a lot more people do this once they realize that it's going to be easy mm. and, you know, there's advantages for it to happen. It's just a matter of... Uh, you know, us hitting that momentum where people have the confidence to start the switching and, and, and are more educated about it. So it's also incumbent on the industry to start educating people. A lot of times it's just so, you know, the language is confusing. I work in fintech, I work in banking, and I didn't even realize that mm. by doing an account switch, I was cutting off my old account. Yeah. And so we just need to do a better job. And I think, again, that's also where fintechs will come along. They'll be they're so much better at explaining complicated terms and making it more intuitive and easier that they probably will allow a lot of that um, kind of innovation and change to happen. Yeah, and talking about customer centricity, you know, educating the customer that it is easy to switch is surely a good move for the customer, if not for the bank. Potentially for the bank. Yeah, and so... This is where banks need to, you know, step up their game and make sure that they're not sitting on their laurels and that they really do pay attention to what is happening and ensuring that their technology, their offering to the client stays in par with what the other banks that are at the forefront of innovation and what the startups are doing is in line with what they're... Otherwise, you know, they'll just fade away. Yeah. And, and but that's what the industry realizes. Yeah. The problem is that a lot of banks just don't know how to do it. Yeah. I think, I think what's really... Well, actually, there's a, somebody's going to say, well, no, the infrastructure legacy, yes, there's a lot of issues. Well, what's really interesting from the story that you shared is the, the kind of emotional ties that yeah. one has with their bank, or even just like a sort code or, yeah. or PIN number that you've had for ages. Yeah. And it's not wanting to kind of stop that break up with that bank um but do you think with open banking that's going to become more frequent are more and more customers going to be thinking actually i could change because regulation kind of helps them do so 
And is that a threat or an opportunity for banks, do you think? And to both. Like I said before, for banks, it's it's an opportunity for them to distinguish themselves. Uh, but it's also a threat because somebody else can come along and easily take away that business. And that's what my job is all about, right? Yeah. Uh, making sure that that doesn't happen to us, but at the same time, fostering that innovation because as a bank, we realize that it's not going to come all from us. That change and the really focus on the customer is going to come a lot from the startup community. So we need to support that. And by the way, the only reason I don't bank with my bank here is because they don't really have a bank offering here in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's saying. Disclaimer. Yeah, and, and so for you listeners, I suppose, if you're considering a breakup with your bank, <laughs> perhaps take heart from this conversation <laughs> and it can be a good move. Okay, so... Pivoting slightly, I'm keen to um, just dig into kind of your personal experience in your career. I wonder if there's any um, person or even a company who has inspired you um, throughout your, your career. And you've worked in some really interesting sectors, so politics, travel, banking, healthcare, these big industries. What's been the most kind of inspirational moment, person, company that you've come across? So, inspirational person... It's definitely my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, you know, he runs his own business and he's always worked very hard. Uh, to pull it from nothing, he started as a foreman at a factory and then eventually built it up to uh, become, for him to become the owner and run the business. So I admire that a lot. And he's always been incredibly supportive of me and my education and ensuring that. I'm always independent mm. and ensuring that I can really get ahead. And for him, that has been via education. Mm. And then, surprisingly, too, uh, I've had some really interesting conversations with my dad about like sustainability or, or just innovation. And so, you know, they manufacture... Um, furniture and doors and they use a lot of wood Mm. and we had this huge conversation about how he makes sure that he's sourcing wood from sustainable forests and he has to make a lot of investment in machinery making sure that you know he's investing in state-of-the-art machinery that helps him stay competitive and ahead of the game so little conversations that you have with family and uh, people that support you, to me, have been the most important ones. Yeah. And what, what trait specifically was it about your father that you found most kind of inspirational? Was it just the hard work, the, the grafting, or was it... I think definitely the, the hard work and dedication. Yeah. Mostly to ensure that us as a family succeeded. Yeah. There's often a correlation between hard work and success. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and going kind of broader, if, if there was anyone that you could meet now and go for go for dinner with, go for breakfast with, um, an inspirational figure, past or present, that you could learn from. Uh, does anyone come to mind? Um, right now, Al Gore comes to the top of my mind. Right. And... Hence conversations about sustainability. Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on right now, right? You know, we just had the floods in Houston where... Um, really good friend got affected through all the flooding. Mm. Um, he had to be evacuated. 
has five kids. Wow. Lost his home, lost everything, because his home was completely inundated. So they're going to go back to nothing, basically. Uh, and he, one of those kids is a newborn. And not to mention all the other devastation that you've seen in the city, right? And I've got family in Houston as well. They they were fortunate to not be affected, but tons of other people have. And so more and more people are talking about how that's due to humans and climate change. And um, Gore was also recently in London promoting his film. I didn't go to the event, but I heard a lot about um, the work that he's been doing on climate change. And I just think it's really interesting how he's been able to have much bigger impact by not becoming president, I think. I think in, in a way he's mm. he's been able to really implement change in a way that he probably would have had a much harder time doing as president. So as you would say in the startup world, he pivoted and <laughs> he's done an amazing job in it. And he also has this firm called... Um, Gore Blood, and it's an investment management firm, mm-hmm. and they only invest in long-term sustainable companies that don't um, somehow negatively affect the environment or have a negative impact on uh, on like people. So it's a really interesting company that yeah. he set up a while, as well, and again, something really interesting that he's done, and so just be, I think, really great to sit down and have a chat with him here. Um, cool. So I guess my final question to you would be, in your career, if you could give yourself one piece of advice if you went to kind of start over again, what would that be uh, and why? It would be to not be so hard on myself. Yeah. I think when you study, for example, an MBA, uh, you're surrounded by really successful mm-hmm. people and hardworking, and it's very hard not to compare yourselves to them um, and not to put pressure on yourself to do even better. And so the one thing I have learned in these 12 years is that we all get there eventually just in different time frames. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to get to where I am right now, but I'm super happy with the job I have and where I am in terms of um, the industry and everything about my job I love right now. And it took me a kind of roundabout long way to get there. And in the meantime, it's really hard not to, you know, compare yourself to yeah. other people that were perhaps succeeding much better before I was. And so my advice to myself would be just keep working. Don't kill yourself over not being good enough. Yeah. Well, I think that that piece of advice probably deserves to be underscored there. I think that's a really fantastic piece of advice and a fantastic place for us to wrap up. Um, so thanks so much for doing take two with us. You're very welcome. <laughs> and to have us back uh, in the office. Too bad, uh, I bet you, like, I remember answering completely different <laughs> yeah. from the last yeah, one. it would be interesting to see what the, the, the comparison, but uh, maybe we could do a take three at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, great, so I guess we'll head back out into London's lovely drizzle. Wonderful. Awesome. Have a much. great day. Bye. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to another episode of Who's Afraid of the Big Idea? If you enjoyed today's show, 
If you think friends, colleagues or family might like it, be feel to share and tell them about it and spread the word. Please also comment, rate us on iTunes so others can discover it. Feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at OneConnected, that's the number one, with any recommendations for future guests or maybe you even have a story to tell yourself. Finally, the podcast isn't sponsored. We do it because we love it, we love to learn and we love to share what we learn. But we do support a fantastic charity in North London, the Heart of Oak Foundation, who support the Oak Lodge School for young people with disabilities. So check them out, find out more at heartofoak.org. Thanks a lot.